Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Once again to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and I am spoiling you this week. It was a little bit slow last week because uh, I had hoped to bring you a podcast, uh, but the interviewee, I couldn't get hold of them in the end, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully I get them at some point in the near future. And um, then I spoke yesterday to uh, Heba Habib, who was here in the studio with me, and uh, we talked about all manner of things Swedish and COVID-19. But I kind of felt that I have to bring you a bonus podcast this week because so much has happened over the last little while. And this is essentially a podcast that I didn't want to have to make, right? I do, just I haven't wanted to speak about this subject, but I'm going to do it now because I want to get these things out of the way. It's something I've seen a lot of on Twitter. It's something that's happening all over the world, really. And I'm seeing the same things happening and the same discussions coming up and the same talking points coming up. And it's to do with George Floyd and it's to do with Black Lives Matter and it's to do with the discussion that we're having at the moment about racism, about racism in America, about police brutality and racism, about structural racism. And really what I'm seeing is really, really disappointing because it just shows how far we have yet to come in the media world. Now, I've long said, and I was saying it recently on Tutto Baluto, which is the most popular podcast here in Sweden, about how the press box in soccer, for instance, uh, doesn't reflect what's happening on the field or in Swedish society, and that goes for pretty much anywhere. When I sit in a press box, I see people who look like me, white, middle-aged people, many of them English-speaking, who have no idea, no understanding whatsoever of what it is to be subjected to racism. So what I wanted to do was, because it's a subject that's interested me for so long, and I mean, I'm going back to you know the first time I ever saw a black man that I recall was Phil Linnett walking on Grafton Street, the singer and bass player from Tin Lizzy. And I remember asking my mother, not who was that, but what was that? And ever since then, this has been a subject that has been close to my heart. I never had an understanding that... Uh, that people came from different parts of the world, that they looked different to me, that they grew up in different ways to me, and they were subjected to different things to me. But I'm speaking very specifically today, uh, both to media consumers, as we always do on this podcast, but also to my fellow white journalists, okay? To people who are sitting there in newsrooms and who are reporting or who are commissioning stories. And I wanted to address some of the points. Now, I have a list of them here in front of me. I'm not going to go through numbers or tell you how many it is or anything else like that, but I'm just going to make these points and feel free then to continue this discussion on social media because this is not a discussion that's going away. The first of those points is that in the scrabbling around in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, if you were looking for people to talk to you, people of colour to talk to you about their experience of racism, you're already too late, right? If you're looking for people to talk to you now, when a man is killed in the street, what have you been doing all this time? Where have you been cultivating these sources? What have you been thinking about? What have you been planning? What have you been publishing that you don't know who these people are? That you can't pick up the phone to anybody to get a comment without going, hang on a second, who do I know who knows black people, who knows people in minorities that I can talk to? And I go back to when the riots happened here in Husby in Sweden in 2013, and I was, call me naive, but I was shocked, shocked, how few journalists actually knew anybody who lived outside here we call them Tullana in Stockholm, which is essentially the city limits. You have North Tull, you have um, 
scones tull, you have roast logs tull, and these places sort of, you know, inside that is the posh, the nice part of the city, outside that is the furutana, the suburbs, right? And literally nobody knew anybody in Hoosby, none of those journalists. And they were calling me and contacting me because they knew I lived quite close to there and I played soccer there, you know? And that's not, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back. That's where I fucking live. Of course I'm going to know people there. But if you're looking for people when the shit hits the fan, it's already too late. And you need to own that. And you need to sit down and ask yourself, how do I prevent that from happening in the future? This point is also for journalists, but it's also for media consumers, right? This is the very last time that we should be expecting black people to do our emotional labor or to be our unpaid tutors on race issues. Now, I'm seeing that some great stuff being done on radio where we are bringing black people into the discussion for once. We're asking them about it and that. But let's remember, they have gone through trauma too, right? Black people in America are going through a collective trauma because they've seen another black man killed on the street, another in a long line going back hundreds of years who's just been killed for no reason in the street by a white police officer so on top of that then on top of that trauma on top of knowing that their sons cannot go out or their daughters cannot go out or that they cannot go out themselves and be stopped on a road without knowing what's going to happen to them not only do they have that responsibility not only do they have that worry but we have they have us on the phone to them going hey hey help me here help me understand this help me become comfortable with this the arrogance of that position to say to them, it's your responsibility to come to me and help me out here is absolutely boundless. Okay? So just because you want to book your seat on the BLM train as, you know, you want to be woke about it, you want to tweet for your brand about it or whatever else like that, th- this is not the time to ask black people to do those things for you. Now, a lot of what we're seeing on radio and in print and in TV. We're talking about the problem of racism, but what we haven't seemed to talk about just yet is who owns that problem, okay? So when we bring people on the air and we put a microphone under their nose or a camera in their face on the street or at a protest, and that's a person of color, and we ask them about their experiences of racism, but we never ask the people who subject them to those experiences why they do so. Now, in a very limited manner, we do that, right? Because we have access to the people in power. I always say that when it comes to riots and civil disturbances, that I always stand on the opposite side from where the police is. Now, I wouldn't like to be doing that in America right now because journalists are being targeted, not to the same extent as people of colour are, but they are definitely being targeted, as we saw in the early part of these protests, right? But the reason I do that is because power will always get its side of the story across, okay? The people who own radio stations and newspapers and TV and their friends and the people that they play golf with and the people that they hang out with and the people that they have their WhatsApp groups with, that side of the story is always going to come out. You can always contact a police spokesperson anywhere in the world. You can find somebody to speak on behalf of the police at any hour of the day or night, right? But we never ask these questions. How can this be? Why are you subjecting these people to these things, right? Nobody ever asked, and you know, it'll come out in court, but the officers who killed George Floyd, the man who killed him, and the three people who've been charged with being an accessory to his murder, eventually that question will be asked. But we as journalists are not asking the question, why are black people being subjected to this all the time? I was listening to a podcast the other day, 
those of you who know me or know anything about me will know that I'm a big fan of NBA basketball in particular and the Boston Celtics and Boston of course being you know the sort of one of the havens of Irish America it has its own problems and has done ever since schools were desegregated right but I was listening to a, a Celtics talk podcast and I was listening to the, the three contributors all of whom were black two of whom were from Philadelphia talking the other day about their experience and one was a middle-aged man I think he's about the same age as myself who was born and raised in Philadelphia and he's still afraid to drive his car and be stopped on his own when there's nobody filming him and yet we never ask the questions. We'll ask him. I know about his experience of being subjected to racism, of being racially profiled, but I never hear from the people who do that to him. I never hear the justification. The people who do that to him are never asked to justify that. Now, if they were asked to justify it, it's going to be a very, very short conversation because it's going to fall apart very, very quickly. But we are again asking black people to explain something to us that they have no control or power over. They're not the ones subjecting people to racism, okay? They, they have no control over this. They can't stop this. They can ask white people to stop doing this. They can ask the, for the power structures to be taken apart and for something new and something more equitable to be put in their place, but they cannot stop this. And again, that soccer podcast was on here in Sweden with Thomas and Gustav. Uh, and Gustav, that was like one of the questions they had for me. I talk a lot about integration and about segregation here between the Förorter and Tullara, between the suburbs and the posh city centre part of town here. And they talked to me about, you know, what can we do better? I said, well, I can't do anything because I don't hold that power. People who live in the postcode where I live don't hold that power. It's up to the people who hold the power to change those things. And it's up to us as journalists and editors and as media consumers to ensure that those questions are asked, not just once, but repeatedly, until such time as this changes. Because we just can't let this slide off into the distance. We just can't let, you know, every news story has a shelf life. And eventually something explodes or we put a man on the moon or somebody wins the World Cup. And we just go back to whatever normal was before. And I've said this about COVID-19. I never want to see normal again. The things that we have accepted as normal in our societies, I never want to see any of them again. One of the ways that this issue has been addressed uh, in recent times, especially by the BBC, uh, the state broadcaster or the public service broadcaster in the UK, is by, and this is in inverted commas, what we call cancelling comedy and culture, Right. Now, to explain what that is, cancelling is, you know, when you say to somebody, oh, you know, we can't listen to this person, we can't have them in the discourse anymore uh, because they have done things or said things in the past and, you know, that, 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 you know, in a modern, with modern ears, they don't sound right. With modern ears, these things don't work. It doesn't look good. So, therefore, we're not going to show these things again. Now, that can happen. It's one of those discussions within the trans, um, tra the trans movement at the moment that, you know, people who disagree with that trans men are men and trans women are women, oh, they're cancelled, you know. But no, no, they're allowed to be part of the debate. It's just that people aren't going to accept the kind of things that they're saying. So if you look at cancelling comedy and culture, uh, two things in particular that stick out. One was the use of the N-word in Faulty Towers, which is still one of the greatest comedy series ever made. And the other is the use of blackface and uh, ableism in Little Britain. Little Britain was made by two great comics, and some of it's very funny, and some of it isn't. But even they realise that a lot of what they're doing is what they call punch-down comedy, right? Their best kind of comedy is the punch-up, is where you attack the powerful and you ridicule them, rather than punching down 
onto groups who have no power, such as people with disabilities and wheelchair users and people of colour. So those aspects of Little Britain, even the writers themselves have said that if we made those shows in 2020, they were probably made 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly, but if we made those shows in 2020, those things would be different because that humour is not acceptable now. The BBC has either re-edited or simply taken down some of those things. Some of the other uh, British TV providers have done similar things because they realise that these things are hurtful to black people. Now, in certain cases, people are saying, well, I don't hear black people saying that, uh, that they don't want these things. Do you really have to hear them say it? Do you really have to have a black person say to you, I was watching Little Britain and I was offended by the blackface sketches that they did? Do you really need that to know that it's wrong? To know that it's offensive? To know that people are going to be hurt by that? Because if you do then maybe black lives don't matter to you as much as your black square on Instagram or as much as you thought that they did, right? So if you're annoyed that a statue in your hometown needs to be removed, maybe black lives don't matter to you as much as you thought, right? I'm grown, I grew up in a generation, the original Faulty Towers generation. I was, you know, probably 10, 11, 12 when those episodes were first shown on the BBC. I loved Faulty Towers. I studied those scripts. But there are jokes that were in them and words that were in them that aren't acceptable anymore. That things just changed. I used to talk about the situation of drink driving in Ireland. You know, the people would have three or four points, points before driving a car and that was before we realised it was wrong. We now realise that you can't do those things and it is that simple. You know, I th- I'd like to think that back at the time when we were laughing at these jokes, I mean, I remember being a teenager myself in Ireland and going to school and I'm ashamed of it now, but the jokes that we told about people who are suffering from the famine in Ethiopia at the time, at the same time as we were sending Do They Know It's Christmas and Band-Aid to the top of the charts and sending our money via Live Aid, we were making jokes about black people starving in school playgrounds. And I'm ashamed of that now. It's not something I can change. They're jokes that I laughed at, they're jokes that I told, and I can't change that now. But all I can do is apologise for it. And the last thing I'm going to do is say, oh, it was part of the time. Hey, do you want me to repeat one of those jokes for you? Do you want me to, to repeat any of those things now? You know, because, hey, it's, you know, we, 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 we can't just erase our past, right? If that's the way you're thinking, maybe you got it wrong. Again, we're seeing a lot of statues being removed. We're seeing a lot of statues of slave traders, people who would have been wealthy people of the day being removed. Um, because things change, you know. And it's not about th- this idea of, you know, uh, oh, oh this, this is a huge problem, you know, because what we're doing is we're, we're wiping out our culture. No. Statues are put up. When a statue is put up in a town, or a street is named in a town, you're glorifying that person. It's a tribute to that person. And if we later find out, or if we later discover that maybe that person wasn't the kind of person we should have been glorifying, well, then we got to take it down. We've got to remove it. We've got to take it out of there. I find it fascinating lately to watch uh, the discourse around Winston Churchill, because Britain in particular, but also the rest of the world, is finally discovering what a massive racist he was. Now, Did he win the Second World War? No, but he certainly contributed a huge amount to it. Did he display great leadership during one of the most difficult periods in European history? Absolutely. Does that cancel out his racism and the Bengal famine? No. So when it comes down to these things, we have to constantly reassess our history. We have to constantly reappraise what we know in the light of what we knew, in the light of what we know now. Are these things still acceptable? Are these things causing unnecessary hurt and pain to other communities? Do we need to reconsider how we frame these things in our society? And as I say, Churchill may have been one of the great leaders for about six years, but a lifetime of racism, 
a lifetime of overt racism cannot simply be washed away because he did a few decent things up to 1944 1945 if it has to be re-edited so be it if a statue has to be torn down, so be it. Why? Because it's not up to us as white people to decide what is racist and what is not. If black people are being silent, or if they are telling us that it's a problem, then we need to listen to that, either their silence or what they say, and we need to address it. We don't need to write op-eds about how our childhoods are being cancelled especially not when you consider what has happened to black culture over the last century or so and if you read any book about jazz and jazz musicians you'll discover all of that in an instant um there's another point that's been made about statues and uh, i've seen it's one of these pseudo intellectual things that happens when people are trying to justify the unjustifiable and they talk about statues go oh yeah but you know you may have been a slave trader but by pulling down the statues aren't we like missing a chance to reflect Listen, in the dozens or hundreds of years that many of these statues were standing there, how many times have you reflected over them? Why are you only starting to reflect about them now? Why are you only starting to think about what these people stood for and what they did? Right? Because these monuments of racism have stood in our cities and our squares pretty much forever. And has that added racism? No. We put them up there and we accepted the narrative of these great men and it's mostly been men. But now, when we look at them through the prism of today, through the lens of today, I'm sorry, they have to go. Journalists and editors again, because that would apply, or what I just said would apply equally to media consumers and to people arguing on social media about whether these things should be, in inverted commas again, cancelled or not. But specifically to journalists and to editors, I want to ask you right now, I know it's going to be difficult because many people are still working from home because of COVID-19, but I want to ask you to have a look around your newsroom right now. Okay, the people are on duty today. How many black or Asian or Middle Eastern faces can you see when you look around your newsroom? Have a look through the reporting that your outlet has done this week, right? And just have a look at who gets to speak, okay? Who's quoted? Who are the stories about? Who's quoted? Why are they quoted? Why are they featured in these stories? And in what context, right? In the last two or three weeks, and this is very deliberate, in the last two or three weeks, are black people allowed to speak as authorities on subject other than race, okay? Have you allowed any black person to speak about COVID-19, about epidemiology, about the return of athletics in the Bislett Games, so-called the Impossible Games in Oslo last night. Are they allowed to speak as authorities on this? Or have you only asked them about subjects pertaining to race? Are the Muslims featured in your broadcasting or your newspapers or, or who exist in your newsroom or who work or contribute to your publications, are they allowed to speak about issues other than Racial profiling, terrorism, Ramadan. Have, have you quoted anybody over the last little while? Right, And that's not to suggest that these are not important conversations. But if that's the only time that they are allowed on air or that they are given column inches, then that is a massive part of the problem. If we are putting people into these little boxes and saying, this is great, I now have a person of colour to write about George Floyd. I'm giving this person 800 words. But I would never, ever, ever 
give them the chance to write about a decision made by the European Central Bank. I would never give them a chance to cover an education debate in my parliament. I would never give them the chance to cover downhill skiing. And the same goes, you know, like it's all through our newsrooms. We need to look at who gets to speak, who we cover, who covers them, and why. I deliberately haven't asked any person of colour to come on this podcast over the last little while. Uh, I just... I just don't want to do it. I don't want to put the responsibility on them to explain things to me that I should already know. Okay? When we talk about George Floyd, when we talk about systemic racism, we don't need any more testimony. There is tons and tons and tons of testimony out there. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of monuments to racism out there. There are any amount of quotes across culture, from Boris Johnson to Donald Trump to you name it. We can find things. We've got the receipts, okay? We don't need any more. Black people don't have to tell us any more about racism for us to further understand it. What we need to do is have discussions among ourselves about how we are going to change these things. And in particular, again, I'm speaking to editors editors and journalists how are we going to change these things what are we going to do today that can change these things how are we going to frame things how are we going to make space for people of color to just be people to talk about the subjects that are close to their heart be it gaming or sports or music or fashion or economics or cooking or whatever else it is so many of us who are liberal and again in inverted commas woke we speak as if uh, you know, oh well, I don't see colour. So just let them be people. When somebody comes through your door, don't see a person of colour, a black person coming through your door and say, oh great, now all of a sudden I have somebody to ask when the next George Floyd happens. We got them right here. Brilliant. Why? Why should they have to carry that burden? Why should they be your get out of jail free card for something that you should have done a lot better and a lot differently a long time ago? This has been a bonus podcast from Airman in Stockholm. You can find me on Twitter at Philip O'Connor. If you want a reasoned discussion, fine. I will happily engage with absolutely anybody on any social media. I don't have Facebook. If you just want to abuse me, probably not going to get involved. But let's have that discussion among white people, among white editors, among white journalists and white media consumers right now about what we can do to change these things. Let's do it in a respectful way and let's stop asking black people to solve a problem that is our problem. Yeah.